Right, people. So uh, Monday is, I mean, Friday you're supposed to turn in a paper, right? Right. I'm not. Uh, two people have turned in their papers already. I'm not going to expose who they are. I don't want to shame them, but I'm very impressed, obviously. Um, you you send the paper to me by email, and I shall send it back to you graded by email. Uh, if you remember that, if you want to do a title other than one of the actual titles there in the um, uh, in the syllabus, then you ought to clear that with me before you turn it in. Um, is there anything anybody wants to ask about all that? Sometimes people say, "Will you tell me more about the paper? What, you, what, what you're looking for in the paper?" And I've actually said everything I can think of uh, in the syllabus. So. I'm very happy to ask uh, to answer any questions you've got, but I can't think of anything else to say um, without you um, prompting me, as it were. Um, next Monday, uh, you are invited to our house for dessert at the end of the class, if you'd like to come again. Um, okay. Uh, we are now, we've, we've come to the end of looking at the Psalms and we're moving thus from the segment of the writings which are concerned with uh, praise and prayer, with worship and prayer and so on, into the segment that's concerned uh, with wisdom. And we'll be looking at uh, Proverbs and the Song of Songs and Job and Ecclesiastes. Um, <coughs> if you ask the question... Um, where shall wisdom be found? Which is a question that actually comes in Job 28. Uh, with regard to, if you ask that question, with regard uh, to the Old Testament as a whole, then the answer is, it comes, wisdom comes in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Job. Um, maybe some some other places too, um, but if we have a look first at the nature of these books, then we can see what it is that um, something of the nature of wisdom, what holds them together. Uh, Proverbs itself is is two or three books. Certainly, there's a big difference between Proverbs chapters one to nine uh, and the rest of the book of Proverbs. Uh, Proverbs offers theoretical and practical teaching about life. Uh, in two main forms. Uh, there are homilies, short sermons, if you like, uh, that come in chapters 1 to 9, uh, which are, are in poetry, but it's not kind of real poetry. It's the kind of poetry that even I could write, really. It's very really simple to write the kind of poetry that Proverbs writes, in which you get... Uh, a, a sermon that might occupy 10 or 20 verses, but in the form uh, of poetic lines that uh, are similar to the poet, uh, in an external way to the poetry in Psalms, in that you get the, uh, the lines containing two, ha two halves, which balance each other in some way. Um, the, the poetic form, though, is very much subordinate to getting the message across. There are two uh, main emphases in these sermons in Proverbs 1 to 9. Uh, one is on applying yourself to the teaching uh, of the wise. Um, uh, and the other is on avoiding getting entangled with other women. 
these two emphases uh, are related. Um, sexual unfaithfulness, Proverbs 1 to 9, uh, is the archetypal folly. The archetypally stupid thing to do uh, is to have an affair. So chapter 5, for instance, My child, give attentive to be attentive to my wisdom, incline your ear to my understanding, so that you may hold on to prudence, and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a loose woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Uh, when you get to chapter 10 of Proverbs, then the atmosphere changes. Uh, the form becomes much more one-verse sayings that are strung after each other. And there are links between them as there are links between different psalms. Uh, but each of the sayings is complete in itself as each of the psalms is complete in itself. The themes broaden out in chapters uh, when you start chapter 10 of Proverbs. Um, amongst the recurrent topics, uh, as well as wisdom um, and sexual relationships that were the major topics in the first nine chapters, there's also the nature of righteousness uh, and the use of words um, and relationships in the community and work uh, and wealth and leadership. Um, sometimes with some clustering of sayings about particular topics, but quite often with moving from one to another that you can't see any link at all. Sometimes there is a link that you can't see. Sometimes it's a purely verbal link you can only see in Hebrew. Um, but if so, then it's at a sort of superficial level. It's not something that helps you to see the, uh, the point. There isn't a point in the order in that sense. So, for instance, chapter 17. Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. A slave who deals wisely will rule over a child who acts shamefully and will share the inheritance as one of the family. The crucible is for silver, the furnace is for gold, but Yahweh tests the heart. An evildoer listens to wicked lips, a liar gives heed to a mischievous tongue. Those who mock the poor insult their maker, those who are glad that calamity will not go unpunished. The last third of the book then comprises five further collection of collections of material. Um, they begin with the 30 sayings of the wise, uh, which in some way compare with the Amenemope instruction that you read for tonight. And then there are some further sayings of the wise, and some proverbs of Solomon that were edited, edited at the course, uh, court of King Hezekiah. Uh, and then in the last two chapters, there are the sayings of Agur uh, and the saying of, sayings of King Lemuel, about neither of whom we know much, apart from that they get their names at the heading of those um, sections. And these uh, chapters of Proverbs are mixed in content and in form. That is, there are many more of those one-verse sayings. There are some long units. And there's the one final poem of 22 verses again, would you believe? Um, about um, the, uh, the ideal wife. As I say, uh, both the uh, homilies, the sermons and the sayings uh, show the usual features of poetry and the prophets and other books in the Old Testament. Indeed, they tend, if anything, to be more regular than other poetry in the Old Testament. Uh, each, each verse then comprises a unit of thought, if not an actual sentence, 
um, two half lines then complement or complete or contrast with each other. And often the meaning of them is interwoven and um, you need to uh, see the interdependence of the two halves of a line. So when chapter 10 begins, a wise child makes a glad father, but a foolish child is a mother's grief. Um, it implies that uh, a, a wise son is a joy both to father and mother. A foolish son is a grief to both. You, you, you don't have to be too... Um, kind of literalistic in the way you read that line. A wise child makes a glad father, but a foolish child is a mother's grief. If you're going to turn that into ordinary, an ordinary sentence, then you'd say, uh, a wise child makes father and mother glad, and a foolish child uh, makes father and mother grieve. Uh, the, the lines characteristically have the three words in each line the same way as happens in the uh, in the Psalms, and sometimes you can, well, quite often you can probably see that in Hebrew. A wise, how's it work? No, I can't see how it works in that one. Oh, well, that's going to be embarrassing, isn't it? <laughs> I'd better look, find out how it works. Oh, I see how they've cheated now. Yes, okay. Yep. They've kind of hyphenated um, in, so that it's a wise child gladdens a father. They've treated that as one word, which is a cheat, but um, they were inspired so they could do things like that. Oh, and the second half, well, yeah. Hmm. Uh, they haven't even bothered to do that in the second half. Actually, there's four. I'm getting into a terrible mess with this. Um, <laughs> The very first verse of, verse, word of chap, verse of chapter 10 is actually an exception to the rule. It is not a 3-3 three, three line, really. It's really a 4-4 four, four line, which is what it looks like in English, which at least proves that you can recognize it in English. And you get into a mess if you try to pretend you can work out what the Hebrew is behind the English, so don't ever do it. But you would never have made that mistake. A wise child makes a glad father, but a foolish child is a mother's grief. Uh, treasures gained by wickedness do not profit. That sounds as if that's okay, but righteousness delivers from death. Yahweh does not let the righteous go hungry, but thwarts the craving of the wicked. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Um, I'm not going to look, but I think those will be all right. Uh, you can see, you can hear how there are, there's the stress, uh, the three stresses in the two halves of the line. When you turn over the page uh, from Proverbs into Ecclesiastes, uh, at least in the order in which the, you get them in the English uh, version, um, you get some more homilies, and in that sense, you could think that you were back uh, at the beginning of Proverbs. You get some uh, longish paragraphs on the same subject, uh, at least in the, particularly in the earlier part of Ecclesiastes. Uh, but you get a quite different atmosphere about the content of the teaching as you get uh, in, into, in Ecclesiastes compared with Proverbs. The, the beginning, the words of the teacher, the son of David, King of Jerusalem, would make you think you're going to get the kind of thing you get in Proverbs. But then immediately, when it starts off with content, vanity of vanities, says the teacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, then you're in a different, you're in a different atmosphere from the atmosphere of Proverbs. And there's the raising of questions 
is the thing that characterizes Ecclesiastes. Sometimes there are answers, but there are more questions than Ecclesiastes. In Proverbs, sometimes there are questions, but there are more answers. When you go on from there into Job, um, and that's not, not, I'm not following here, obviously, the order in the English Bible or the order in the Hebrew Bible, but a kind of logical order. If you go on from, Ecclesi- from Proverbs then it, into Ecclesiastes, then into Job, then you get something that has in common with Ecclesiastes, uh, that it's strong on questioning. Um, but it does its questioning in the form um, of the script of a play. So that it's got a big question it's interested in, which is at one level the question of why do people suffer? Why is there evil in the world? Why do things work out the way they do? Um, but behind that is our questions about how does God rule the world? In what sense is God involved in the world? Is it possible to be in relationship with God? Is it possible to know what God is doing in the world? There is uh, a, a, a working at a series of, of related questions of that kind. Uh, a, a working at those questions by means of the script of a play, because that makes it possible to have different people in the play expressing different uh, angles upon the questions, giving different answers. And one of the effects of that is, is in a way to do something with you such as Psalm 139 does with you. It, makes, it reads you as well as you reading it. That is, you have to keep thinking about what this guy says and what that guy says, what this chapter says and what that chapter says. Uh, and it doesn't tie it all up for you um, precisely because what it's doing is looking at its questions from different angles and seeking to draw you into the discussion, the contemplation, the thinking about the issues in such a way that it doesn't answer them uh, that the, what both Job and Ecclesiastes are about, you could say, is how you live with questions when you can't answer them. So Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Job are the three kind of textbook examples of wisdom uh, in the uh, wisdom books in the Old Testament. What is it that they've got in common? They've got a lot in tension with each other, I've suggested to you. What have they got in common? And what they've got in common, I think, is the approach to discovering answers to questions that I've described uh, in that quote that follows, um, that definition that follows uh, on page 91. Wisdom literature looks at life itself in order to discuss directly how to see life and how to live life. Um, Wisdom literature is concerned with how to see life and how to live life. Now, that's the whole Bible is concerned with how to see life and how to live life. So that's not what's distinctive about the wisdom literature. But other parts of the Bible seek to help you to understand how to see life and how to live life in a quite different way from the way in which the wisdom literature does. I don't mean that the answers are necessarily different, but the way in which they, they examine, they look for the answers is different. So the, the dominant way in which the Bible um, invites you to come to see life is by telling you the story of what God did uh, with it, well from creation and through the story of Israel and then what God did in Jesus. Uh, and it says to you, if you, want to, if you want to understand life, you want to know how to see life, then you need to see that's this story 
as the key to an understanding of what life is about. Uh, if you want, <coughs> when you look at the prophets or um, the Torah or the Sermon on the Mount or Paul's epistles, then you are discovering you're being told how to live life, but, but you're being told uh, on a different, about that on a different basis from the basis that the wisdom books use. You're being told, uh, Moses is saying, go and do this because God says so, and or because I say so, and or because it links with the way in which God has dealt with you in bringing you out of Egypt, for instance. You're to go and be the, uh, the kind of people that, uh, that it's appropriate you should be in light of the way that God has related to you. Or the prophets say, go and be this kind of people because of who God is, and because of what God has done for you, and because of what God is going to do with you if you're not careful. Um, and, and Jesus uh, and Paul uh, argue in analogous ways. But when the wisdom books are uh, going about providing the rationale for your understanding of how life works and how you should live your life, uh, they go about that looking at life itself. They don't talk about the exodus uh, or the covenant. They don't talk about God having said to me, this or that. They don't talk about the prophets. Uh, they uh, are rigorous in looking at how life actually works, how life actually is, in order to be able to teach you how life is and how life works. Now, that doesn't mean, as it would probably mean in the context of modernity, that they do that in a way that leaves God out. Because they take for granted that God is part of the picture about how life is. It's, it's part of the mental framework that human beings have got. The reality of God being there is just as much a reality as the idea of me being here or you being there. I mean, maybe you're a figment of my imagination. Maybe, maybe this whole evening is a bad dream. Maybe I'm the only thing that exists. Or maybe I don't exist at all and in a minute you will wake up and you're sitting lying on the beach. You can't prove the reality. I can't, you can't prove that I'm here and I can't prove that you're here. But we kind of know that's true, really. Um, and in traditional societies, people make the same assumption about the reality of God and also about the reality um, of right and wrong and the basics about right and wrong. <coughs> and to put that theologically, we'd say God has, God has hardwired us with an understanding of your being real, my being real, God being real, right and wrong being real, and so on. And in the light of that all being real, let's look at life and how it works out, and how, and how things work out in life. And on that basis, learn how to understand life, and learn how to live life. That's how the wisdom books work. Wisdom literature looks at life itself, in order to discuss directly how to see life, and how to live life. And that means it's inductive, not deductive. It doesn't start from some principles and work down towards them, but it starts from how things are. It's experiential in the sense of empirical. That is, when, it, when I talk about experience, I'm not just talking about my inner experience, I'm talking about one's experience of how of things that happen in life, in the sense of empirical, like science. And to put it theologically, it's more the fruit of general revelation than the fruit of special revelation. Now, generally speaking, the characteristic and nature of the Bible is to be special revelation. It's to be the, it is the special revelation. 
And it is the special revelation because it's the, it's the um, book that tells you that story about how God got involved with Israel in a way that came to a climax in the story of Jesus. And the reason why the Bible has authority and that uh, the Bhagavad Gita uh, or the Quran um, don't, have, don't have that kind of authority is that they may tell you lots of things that are true, but they can't tell you that thing which gives you the clue to an understanding uh, of God and us, which is that story of Israel that comes to a climax in Jesus. That's why the Bible has an authority that other religious books don't have. They can be totally true. Uh, there could be nothing untrue about them at all, but they still wouldn't be able to tell you that story. That's why the Bible is important, because that's the special revelation that it gives you. And that makes the wisdom books really weird by virtue of they're not talking about that special revelation. Um, it means that if the Bible were only the wisdom books, then we might as well all pack up and go home. There would there'd be no, not much point in it really, no point certainly arguing that the Bible is more important than other religious books. Um, so uh, for it, it's important that the wisdom books are only one segment of the Bible. But once you've granted the importance in the Bible of the special revelation, the special storytelling, the special authority that attaches to its telling the story of Jesus, that, of, of, of Israel that leads up to Jesus, then you can allow for the setting of some insight that you could call general revelation in the context um, of the way in which that special revelation is given. Indeed, you could... Um, uh, I, I like to see, in a way, that very process happening in the, in the first paragraph of Proverbs. I'll say more about that, about this next week. Um, but here's how Proverbs starts off. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, for learning about wisdom and instruction, for understanding words of insight, for gaining insight in wise dealing, and it could be any, any kind of empirical, unbelieving, no ethical values sort of thing. But then he goes on to righteousness, justice and equity. Now, there's some right concern about righteousness and justice and equity in other people's um, wisdom literatures there. But Proverbs goes on, To teach shrewdness to the simple, knowledge and prudence to the young. Let the wise also hear and gain and learning, and the discerning acquire skill. To understand a proverb and a figure, the words of the wise and their riddles. You could be in any ancient Near Eastern wisdom literature. Until you get to, Awe for Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And suddenly something revolutionary has happened. Uh, when the insight that you could gain from other people's uh, wisdom literatures is set in the context <coughs> not merely of belief in God, which other wisdom literatures at least nominally would do, but in the context of awe for Yahweh. Wouldn't it have been surprising if Proverbs chapter 1 verse 7 had said, awe for God is the beginning of knowledge, but very striking that what it says is awe for Yahweh. It's the beginning of knowledge. Yahweh, the, the God especially known in Israel. God has been no, uh, involved with Israel in a special way. So that <coughs> it's, it's as you... The, the Proverbs, although it isn't going to talk about what got the way that God had been involved with Israel, is presupposing the way that God had been involved with Israel. And, and so this is what... this In this book, what you have is people who are the people of Yahweh then looking at life to see how life works and to see how to live life. They're doing the, um, they're involved in, in integration, you could say. 
They're doing that thing that, that people in the School of Psychology are doing all the time when they are starting from belief in the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and then looking at how human beings work and at theories about how human beings work um, but setting them in the context of their uh, understanding um, of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if that's the basic nature of wisdom, uh, then one can see how the boundaries between wisdom books and, other, and some other books come to be a bit fuzzy. There are some works in the um, Apocrypha, the Deuterocanonical writings, that certainly count as wisdom. So I've mentioned there on the sheet uh, the Wisdom of Solomon, which is often referred to simply as the Book of Wisdom, uh, and the Wisdom of Jesus ben Sirah, which is sometimes referred to as Ecclesiasticus or as Sirach. Those are books quite like um, Proverbs, but they don't appear within the Hebrew Bible. They appear only within uh, the, the Deuterocanonical writings. Um, I will say four sentences about the canon. Don't count, because um, I haven't yet decided what the four sentences are. <laughs> <coughs> the writings that we have, the books that we have in the Torah, the Prophets and the Writings, what we call the Old Testament, uh, are the scriptures that are accepted by the Jewish community. Uh, we don't know this is going to be more than four sentences, apologies. Uh, unless there's a lot of semicolons, you can't, you can't, you can't see them, so it's okay, yeah. Um, or brackets as well, it could be some of those. Uh, we don't know when the, uh, the, the Torah, the Prophets and the Writings came to be um, finally recognised as the scriptures of the, of the Jewish community. And uh, the books often discuss what might have been the process of canonisation um, and look for a moment when a decision might have been made to say, those are the scriptures. My guess is there never was such a moment that the process of the accumulation of the scriptures was one that happened gradually, uh, that, that, they, that, a, that a, store, a book, examples of the books like we've been um, looking at, Lamentations, Ruth, Esther and so on, um, found, the, the, won the community's confidence, they knew they'd heard the word of God here, they kept hold of them. And a process like that was going on uh, through what we call Old Testament times. Uh, but there wasn't a moment, which, a moment at which somebody said, okay, that's it, no more, and put up a fence around the canon. They simply, it never happened again. If that's my guess. Um, and my further guess is the last time at which it happened uh, it happened in connection with the book of Daniel, uh, which we'll be looking at in um, at, at the end of the course. The book of Daniel uh, talks a lot about the exile in the period of Daniel's own day, but it talks a lot about the great crisis, the great crisis uh, brought in Jerusalem by Antiochus Epiphanes when he sought to ban observance of the Jewish religion and introduce into the temple the abomination, the original abomination of desolation. Daniel's visions promise um, that he will be put down and that the temple will be restored. Uh, and amazingly, the Jewish people does find uh, deliverance from his um, power uh, and gains its freedom. And the temple is um, renewed, rededicated at that first festival of Hanukkah. 
Uh, and, uh, and my guess is that it's that kind of event that makes people say, that guy's Daniel's visions, they must have been the word of God. Put them in the Bible, quick, as it were. Um, that the, the fulfillment of scripture is one of the factors that leads into the recognition uh, or the fulfillment of prophecies is one of the factors, the factors that leads into the putting into scripture of prophecies like the books of people like Isaiah or Jeremiah or Daniel. Um, and, and my guess is, my hunch is, that the last time that happened was in 164. It, it never happened again. But we have no record of a decision at that point or at any subsequent point that those are the bounds of the Jewish scriptures. It's simply that, we, that when we have any account of the bounds of the Jewish scriptures, these are the scriptures that Jews recognised. And it fits with that, that whereas most of those Jewish scriptures are quoted in the New Testament, um, there are no quotations from any other Jewish writings of, that, of, a, of a religious kind, of a quasi-canonical kind in the New Testament, apart from the reference to Enoch um, in the book of Jude. Now, um, uh, the church came to recognise, came to work with, a broader range of Jewish writings than the ones that are in the Torah, the prophets and the writings. Uh, and those included the wisdom of Solomon and the wisdom of Jesus, of Jesus ben Syrah um, and Maccabees and various other works. And those came to be treated as scripture in the church, probably partly, if not entirely, more or less by mistake, because Jews translated the, the, proper, the scriptures proper into Greek, and they also translated some other works into Greek, and they also wrote some words in Greek, some works in Greek. Ecclesiasticus was written in Hebrew and translated into Greek. The Book of Wisdom was written in Greek. Um, and of course there was no such thing as a, there weren't any books like this. You couldn't walk into a store and buy, say, please can you give me a copy of the Bible? It didn't work like that. It's a they'd say, yeah, it's the scrolls are already on the, on the wall there, sir. You just uh, choose whichever ones you want. Because each um, book is a scroll. Um, and nobody would have a, you know, nobody, unless you were very rich, would have a complete set of these scrolls or anything. So the question of which book, exactly which books made, made up the Bible would be a kind of slightly artificial one for most people, not a meaningful one for most people. So not surprising if the Christians got a bit confused about where the boundaries of the Bible lay. Um, and for a long time, the, the church dealt with a broader, accepted a broader collection of writings, but then uh, uh, it eventually had to face the question, do we, do we work with the longer canon that the church came to accept, or do we work with the shorter canon that the Jewish community accepted? And that's still a, uh, a question around in the church today, um, so that the, the usual Protestant position uh, is to stick with the Jewish canon. Um, in the Roman Catholic Church, uh, then you uh, work with the broader canon, and as usually the Episcopal Church can't make up its mind. Um, and so we kind of try to hedge to sit on the fence uh, over the question. The, um, <coughs> the, writings that the, the writings that used to be called the Apocrypha, but for whom now the politically correct term is the Deuterocanonical writings, uh, then include two wisdom books that are just like the wisdom books. That's the end of the four sentences, which is more, than, more like 97 sentences, so I apologise. Uh, the... The wisdom, books, the wisdom books include these two books, the wisdom of Solomon and the wisdom of Jesus Ben Sira, which are just as much wisdom books as Proverbs is, 
um, but are different insofar as they are outside the bounds uh, of the Jewish canon. Uh, other books that you might think of that, that are, that are, that are in, to, to one degree or another like uh, Proverbs, Job, and Ecclesiastes then are the following. First, the Song of Songs. Um, somebody asked at the beginning of the course, what was my justification for calling the Song of Songs a wisdom book then? And I said, I'll try and think of one by now. And now it's the <laughs> things are, chicks are coming home to roost. Well, it does begin the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Um, and uh, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and the Song of Songs are all kind of within the Solomonic bracket. Solomon is the patron saint of wisdom, in the way that David is the patron saint of psalmody, uh, Moses is the patron saint uh, of law, and so on. The Song of Songs um, is thus implicitly a Solomonic piece of teaching um, about uh, sex and love. It, it doesn't talk about wisdom, in the way that Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Job do. But it is very empirical. It is very much looking at ordinary life. It's doing that thing that I was describing as looking, uh, discussing directly how to see life and how to live life. And so, so um, given that I've got nowhere else to treat the Song of Songs, I've got some justification for treating it uh, with, the, with the wisdom books. Daniel is a book that then uh, overlaps with wisdom substantially in that it is concerned with how to live life, the practicalities of living life in exile for Daniel and his three friends. Uh, and it's concerned also with big questions about how to see life, with the question of the meaning of history as a whole. So it has these great visions that cover centuries and centuries, four empires, um, and, and thus seeks to get an understanding of God's involvement uh, with reality as a whole. And then Esther and Joseph have been seen as rather like wisdom stories in the way in which they, they examine and talk about, tell the story of people's lives that are lived um, without overt involvement on God's part, but are described empirically. Now, jo the Joseph story explicitly eventually says, yeah, God was involved. And the Esther story implicitly assumes that God is involved. But they describe the stories simply in the way that things work out, uh, rather than keeping referring to God's um, involvement in the way that um, the Gospels would or in the way in which um, Genesis or Exodus would. So within the Old Testament and its kind of associated literature, those are works that are quite like Proverbs, Job and Ecclesiastes. And then there are lots of works outside of the outside of Jewish religious literature um, that you could call wisdom. Um, and I've got you to read some examples of that for today. But um, it's not just a Middle Eastern phenomenon. Uh, I have a, a book by a German scholar called Friedrich Golke uh, called The Leopard Spots, which, for reasons, I, I can't remember why that's its title, um, but it's about African proverbs. Here are, from examples. Here are some examples. A wife is like a blanket. For even though it scratches you, you're cold, you're cold without it. <laughs> Scandal is like an egg. When it is hatched, it has wings. 
Don't be sorry that you've missed the funeral. There will be many more taken ill. And my ultimate favourite, to marry is to put a snake in one's handbag. Um, and then uh, Elsa Tamas, uh, in her book, When the Horizons Close, is actually about Ecclesiastes, but she includes an appendix which has got quite a number of Latino proverbs, that many of which I don't know the meaning of. If there's anybody present can explain them, that would be excellent. Um, uh, she is a sel herself uh, a Latina who is Mexican, but is the president of a seminary in Costa Rica, or possibly a Costa Rican who's the president of a seminary in Mexico. I've forgotten which way around it goes. <clears throat> no one ever dies the night before. The worst dish is the one you cook, but don't eat. When the mule driver dies, we'll know whose mules they are. Marriages and shrouds are made in heaven. Those who are born to be tamales think the leaves fall from heaven. Which apparently means, once a fool, always a fool. <laughs> oh, that's what she says it means. Mm -hmm. Were they written in Spanish, or were they in English? Because, I mean, there's something to be said when they're translated. Oh, okay, then. Cuando se mucra el arriero, sabremos de quien son las mulas. Now, now, you know, now you need me to tell you the English so you can understand what my Spanish said. <laughs> oh, that's, that's the first. No. Which one? Oh, yeah. La puerca suela es guisarla y no comerla. Um... I'm still lost. <laughs> <laughs> I feel so much better now. It's, I, I don't feel anywhere near as stupid now. It's really good. Thank you. Solomon wrote the Song of Songs in the springtime of youth. He wrote Proverbs with the wisdom of maturity. He wrote Ecclesiastes with the disillusion of old age. Uh, so, Rabbi Jonathan, in Song of Songs Rabbi, um, uh, that's a midrash on the Song of Songs. The, the, the five scrolls that you know about, Ruth and Esther and Ecclesiastes and Lamentations um, and Song of Songs, uh, have, a, have long Jewish commentaries associated with them. Uh, which and the word rabbi is the uh, is the word for that, and they collect lots of rabbinic sayings. It goes back to uh, I suppose they come from the uh, first from the first millennium uh, of the Common Era, um, between naught and a thousand, in other words. 
um, <coughs> AD. Uh, Rabbi Jonathan comes from the earlier part of that period. Um, and uh, it's, uh, it's a neat saying that expresses the, uh, something of the nature, the interrelationship of Song of Songs and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Uh, is it, did um, Solomon write them like that? Uh, the, the book of Proverbs, uh, of course, begins indeed with a reference to Solomon. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. But then, uh, in the course of the book, it refers to other characters, as I've already noted. Chapter 30 begins, the words of Agur, son of Jackie. Uh, and chapter 31 begins, the words of King Lemuel, an oracle that his mother taught him. Uh, so even Proverbs doesn't necessarily imply that the Proverbs of Solomon are all Proverbs that Solomon personally wrote. Solomon's relationship with Proverbs may be more subtle than that. And when you think about it, nobody writes Proverbs. I mean, they kind of happen, don't they? So even Solomon, even the wisest person in the world, can't kind of write ten Proverbs every day. It doesn't kind of work like that. Uh, and so the notion that, um, that, that Solomon is somehow the patron of wisdom, the person who encourages uh, the development, the collecting, and the thinking, makes possible the expression of wisdom that's expressed in a book like Proverbs um, could, ma could make more sense than the idea that, Proverb, that, that Solomon wrote them all. Uh, in the scholarly world, there have been changes in fashion about how much Solomon uh, might be behind <coughs> Excuse me, uh, the, the book of Proverbs as we have it. Um, and uh, so, so, so that sometimes the scholarly world is being inclined to think, yeah, um, the, the book of Proverbs could go back, much of the material could go back to Solomon's day. Um, uh, in, in, at present, the scholarship in general, the critical scholarship in general, is more sceptical about, about that kind of question. Sit tight, it'll change again in another 20 years. Um, uh, but also, don't, don't fret about it. Don't, don't, water, don't, don't think that's a key question. That may not be the most, the most interesting, the most important question to know who wrote a proverb, precisely because the authorship of a proverb um, is a kind of irrelevant to the content of the proverb. Uh, a more worthwhile um, way of looking at the question about background and so on, I think, uh, is to think about the social contexts of the Proverbs. Um, and this sort of study is then analogous to what um, Gunkel was doing with the Psalms. Instead of asking about, asking about authorship, he asked about recurrent usage and social context, or Sittim Leben. Um, and one can imagine that the Proverbs could have had three social contexts. Uh, one is family life. There's quite a lot of talk uh, about the relationship of parents and children. And while some of that um, talk in, expressed in terms of the teaching of children by their parents may be metaphorical, maybe a teacher speaking to pupils but using the metaphor of parents and children, um, probably not all of it is, or at least it, it, would, it would only have become a metaphor if it had also been a reality. Uh, and one can, one's then reminded of the obligation that's laid upon parents in Deuteronomy um, to teach their children. So one could imagine that much of the background of the proverbial teaching in the book of Proverbs lies in the life of the family and would thus actually vastly antedate Solomon, would go, would go back as far as you could 
in the story, back to Abraham if you like. Uh, surely there would have been teaching in the family along uh, lines of, that are expressed in Proverbs. A second social context for thinking about the background of Proverbs uh, would be what you, might call, what you might call the court college. That is the place where people were trained for work in the administration. Um, and that's uh, much more certainly the background of much of the uh, collection and use of wisdom uh, teaching uh, in Egypt and in Mesopotamia, uh, where, where there's uh, a much more substantial earlier um, administrative uh, body of, of, of people involved in the administration who need to, need to learn stuff. Uh, and you can see the concern with that context for wisdom uh, in the uh, material that there often is uh, in that ancient Near Eastern, in those ancient Near Eastern wisdoms that relates to service at the court and the way that you relate to the king and so on. Uh, lo and behold, though, in Proverbs, uh, there uh, are chunks of material that, that warn you or offer you advice about how you serve the king, how you go about, how you go about relating to the king. Uh, and lots of material about how decisions ought to get taken um, and, and what's the relationship between uh, your being involved in war and Yahweh being the one who makes decisions about what happens in wars and so on. So one can see that the court college would be a logical context in which people would use the material in Proverbs. And when you're thinking about a period of time, uh, then the monarchy uh, would be the context in which that would arise, the, the period that is, that is in which there were kings, in which uh, Israel and Judah uh, were nations that were involved in relationship with other nations, when there were um, policies uh, needed for the relationship between uh, the centre and the periphery within the nation itself. One can see how the training of people could have um, involved the use of Proverbs. But then further in Proverbs, there is an interest in those big questions about seeing life. Uh, what is life about? Which come to the surface in the form of questions uh, more in Job and Ecclesiastes, but also are there in Proverbs itself. And not least in the way in which it talks about creation. What's the nature of this world? Uh, and that's the kind of question that you wouldn't necessarily need to ask in the court college, but, in, but, but that you might uh, be asking in the kind of equivalent of the theological school uh, that starts developing in the Second Temple period, uh, the time when the, the places where eventually uh, rabbis are going to be trained. So when you see theological issues dis being discussed in Proverbs or elsewhere, uh, you can imagine a usage in that kind of context. Family life, court, college, theological school. So uh, I wouldn't want to... Um, make too much of a link between the Proverbs and the Wisdom Books and Solomon. And yet, Solomon is portrayed as the wise person par excellence. And so Solomon's story ought to tell us something about the nature of Old Testament wisdom. <coughs> 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 3. Solomon loved Yahweh. Oh, there's that word being used in just the way I was talking about. It's not talking here about his personal affection for Yahweh, at least not that alone. It goes on to say, Solomon loved Yahweh, walking in the statutes of his father David. His expression, his love for, for, for Yahweh, was a commitment to, to Yahweh. 
Only he sacrificed and offered incense at the high places, which he didn't have any, any alternative to in his day, because there wasn't a temple in Jerusalem yet. He hasn't yet built it. The king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the principal high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, Yahweh appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, ask what I should give you. Whoa! Isn't that the most testing question? You know, when Bartimaeus says to Jesus, when Jesus says to Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? Whoa! Solomon said, you've shown great steadfast love to your servant, my father David, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and uprightness. Now, Yahweh, my God, you've made your servant king in place of my father David, although I'm only a little child, I don't know how to go out or how to come in. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, able to discern between good and evil. For who can govern this, your great people? Can you remember somebody else who wanted to know about good and evil? And got in trouble for it. Um, moral of the story is, it, if you ask God, it's okay. If you just decide for yourself, you're going to get it. You may find um, unpleasant consequences. But being able to discern between good and evil is um, a, a gift, an asset, a strength that the Old Testament universally recognises as very important for ordinary life, but in particular if you're going to be involved in the administration. So that's what Solomon asks for, and it pleases the Lord that Solomon asked this. God said to him, because you've asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but understanding to discern what is right, I now do according to your word. I give you a wise and discerning mind. I give you also what you have not asked. Then Solomon awoke, it had been a dream. Now if we said that, I woke up and it was a dream, we'd be disappointed. <laughs> but of course the Old Testament guys knew that God's well for that matter the New Testament guys knew that God speaks to people in dreams to say it was a dream is to say yeah it was a real communication between God and me that went on here um, and so comes to Jerusalem and stands before the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh there um, and brings offerings <coughs> and the very next thing that you're told is that two prostitutes come to the king um, and they tell him that uh, they both had babies. One of the babies died uh, and the two women are now arguing about whose baby died and whose baby is still alive. Um, and they want the king to decide. Then the king said, um, bring me a sword. The king, the king said, Divide the living boy in two, then give half to the one and half to the other. But the woman whose son was alive said to the king, because compassion for her son burned within her, Please, my lord, give her the living boy. Certainly don't kill him. The other said, It shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide it. Then the king responded, Give the first woman the living boy. Don't kill him. She is the mother. All Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered and they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to execute justice. Uh, immediately one discerns uh, that wisdom 
is a practical as well as theoretical. It's not just concerned with those big questions. It's concerned with the practicalities. Uh, it's communal as well as individual. It's concerned with things in the community. Solomon's own concern was that he should be able to uh, have the wisdom that would make it, make, it, make it possible to operate in the community. It's political as well as private. Uh, the next chapter spells that out lots more because it uh, describes the kind of detailed administration um, that Solomon needs to devise in order to be able to run um, the empire that he's inherited from David. Uh, it's royal as well as, well as egalitarian. That is, there's a sense in which wisdom is open to everybody, but there's also a sense in which there's a recognition that people in that key position of leadership need wisdom in a special kind of sense. It's ethical as well as value-free. It's value-free in the sense that it's, um, it's empirical, um, it, 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 but, but it's, it's ethical in the sense that it, the wisdom that Solomon shows is a wisdom about how to handle a situation in an ethical way. It fits with that way in which, at the beginning of Proverbs, righteousness and justice are suddenly brought into the discussion about wisdom. Uh, it's God-given as well as humanly achieved. And, and that's the, uh, there's a kind of paradox about that that I find difficult to uh, analyse or get my mind around or, or something. I, can't, I, don't, I think it feels as if I ought to be able to say intelligent things about it, and I can't. Um, because uh, the... Uh, that, though it is expressing a, a, a tension and ambivalence that runs through scripture, I think, in some other areas than this one. On the one hand, Solomon has wisdom because God gives it. Um, and yet, nobody gets wisdom just by sitting there and doing nothing and not thinking and not trying. And certainly the presupposition of the existence of a book like Proverbs is that you can try and you need to try. Otherwise, why would these guys have bothered to write the book of Proverbs, to accumulate it all? And why, why would they keep talking the way they do about the importance of correction and you know, get, get a grip of these people who need to be taught things and, and so on? There's, um, there's human activity and divine activity involved. You don't get any wisdom uh, unless you work at it, but you don't necessarily get wisdom just because you work at it, because there's something strange happens in the process whereby God gives wisdom and God opens eyes. It's God-given as well as humanly achieved. Uh, I've gone on for longer than I should have done. Um, talk for a minute or two again with each other about any of those things that we've looked at in terms of the, the nature of wisdom. Anything that interested you?
say anything about any of that? Um, I, um, that's what the, I encourage you to read Aminem Ope, which is a more, uh, more like the first part of Proverbs. There are some Akkadian Proverbs uh, that appear in the book Ancient and Eastern Texts um, that uh, in some ways are like the Proverbs in the book of Proverbs. Uh, here are some examples. Eat no fat, and you will not have blood in your excrement. <laughs> Has she become pregnant without intercourse? Has she become fat without eating? <laughs> Last year I ate garlic, and this year my belly became inflamed. They pushed me under the water and endangered my life. I caught no fish and lost my clothes. <laughs> a thing which has not occurred since time immemorial, a young woman broke wind in her husband's embrace. <clears throat> and, and the ultimate in um, enigma, really, a bucket floats in the river. <laughs> now, um, I, I used to get students to read this as well as reading Omen Ope. And then they used to ask me to explain these sayings, and I couldn't explain them. And they were disgusted with me. So uh, I got the, the, the Professor Hayes' predecessor as uh, Professor of Ancient Near Eastern stuff uh, to come and um, talk about them, because I thought, well, you know, that will, they get the answers that way. And he'd got no clue either, uh, which made me feel much better. Um, and it's, it illustrates that, you know, when things come out of a totally alien culture like that, you may well not understand lots of aspects of them. But then the good news is this, that there may be, it may be that there are lots of ways in which we get discouraged about particular detail about the scriptures that we don't understand. But when you compare with how hard it is to, get, to gain an understanding from scratch um, of material that comes out of another culture that's 3,000 years ago like that, we are hugely blessed and privileged that we can understand the scriptures to the extent that we can. Um, and... And, and the reason why we can do that is precisely because the Bible was not something that was dug up um, quite recently uh, and, and had had nobody looking after it and teaching it and explaining it uh, over millennia. millennia. 
uh, it, it's easy for us to forget how we are only able to understand the scriptures today because we are the beneficiaries of the people who have been um, reading and copying and explaining the scriptures, Jews and Christians, over 3,000 years. Um, and that, that, that tradition of reading and interpretation is something of which we are the beneficiaries. Um, or to put it another way, that involvement of the Holy Spirit uh, with the scriptures, not only in the generating of them, but in the preserving of them and in the preaching of them uh, over three millennia uh, is very important uh, to our being able to understand them now. So that once in every 50 lines we come across something that's difficult to understand, but most of the time, really, we are privileged to be able to understand it as well as we can. Um, in the last few minutes, um, the uh, page 93... Maybe because of their, uh, that interaction with uh, actual life, uh, the wisdom books have been a special focus uh, of feminist approaches to the scriptures, to the Old Testament. Which start, and feminist interpretation of scripture was much more prevalent with regard to uh, the Old Testament um, uh, early on than with regard to the New Testament. The New Testament guys always take a, take a while to kind of catch up on trendy things, you know. That was a joke, okay, right? Ah, go away. No, don't go away. Stay here for another seven minutes. Um, and so that both uh, approaching the wisdom books in light of feminism, feminism, both enables one to see things in a, in a positive way that one would otherwise have missed, um, though it also sometimes causes problems that you didn't realise were there before. Oh, thanks very much. I thought I'd got some problems already. Now I've got some more. Well, okay, that's, you know, sometimes you solve some and sometimes you find some more. Uh, the book of Proverbs. Um, the bra there's a bracket around the book of Proverbs um, it, which puts wisdom embodied in a woman uh, at both ends of the book and there's a kind of frame around the book as a whole. So that Proverbs 1 to 9 uh, is... Um, that in Proverbs 1 to 9, the dominant figure is Miss Wisdom, who's the embodiment um, of God's wisdom. Uh, she is described, um, she speaks most systematically in chapter 8 as she um, proclaims in the manner of a prophet. Uh, but then she reappears in chapter 9, uh, set over against uh, a woman who embodies foolishness. There's a, a boldness, you might think, about seeing wisdom embodied um, in, uh, as a woman in that way. In chapters 1 to 9, it's a personification. It's at a theological level that wisdom is embodied as a woman. Uh, in Proverbs 31, uh, it's a concrete actual woman who is the embodiment of wisdom in those 22 verses. So there is the A to Z of a wise woman in verses 10 to 31. Thems themselves, however, or itself, however, set in the context of those words of King Lemuel in an oracle that his mother taught him. Uh, and it's surely significant that it's not just the, 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 the poem about the woman, um, but the teaching that goes back to King Lemuel's mother that is what, what Proverbs closes off with.
Job, when you ask, when you approach the question of the, when you approach the story of Job from a woman's angle, uh, it makes you ask some more about Mrs. Job, uh, about um, how little she's talked about, about the fact that the poor woman, okay, she has ten children at the beginning, and then she has another ten children at the end. Is she not tired by then? Um, not a question that's within the purview of the book. Uh, so that um, it, it, it raises questions for you that the book itself doesn't raise, but, but once you start looking at, at, the, uh, at the book from a woman's angle, uh, then you uh, find yourself thinking of new sorts of questions. Um, and it raises the question whether a story about a woman would be different, whether there's a different sort of way that women would discuss the question that the book talks about um, from the way in which Job... Is, is Job a masculine book in that sense? Is the quest for meaning in Ecclesiastes, similarly, is that a male quest? <coughs> and what about that gloomy conclusion in chapter 7? One man among a thousand I found... But a woman amongst all these, I have not found. Um, is this a misogynistic statement that's not really part of the inspired word of God, or shouldn't be? Uh, or is it a comment um, on the author's experience as a man? Uh, it's, uh, it's noteworthy that elsewhere, um, Ecclesiastes encourages um, other uh, uh, men to enjoy life, including their life um, with their spouse. So he's not wholly misogynistic. Is, that he, is, it, is, he, is he saying there, I haven't found the woman for me. All I, all I have personally found is trouble with women. Is it part of a reflection on the way in which Genesis 2 um, and 3, uh, well, the, the promise of Genesis 2 hasn't come true, um, and the grim warning at the end of Genesis 3 has come true? Uh, or, or is it, as Roland Murphy claims in the word commentary, um, a, a misogynic, misogynistic statement that's denied in the context? This is what I've not found. I think that's too clever an answer, but I wish I could believe it, but it's neat. <laughs> but I don't think I can. Note the oddity of the fact that um, it, actually, it says, uh, one human being among a thousand I have found, one Adam, but a woman amongst these I have not found. Um, it, it's, it's, it's strange the way it talks about um, man and woman in relation to humanity in that line. The Song of Songs is the standout biblical book for an egalitarian vision of man and woman. The um, translations used to dis distinguish within in the Song of Songs um, between the lover and the beloved. Um, but those aren't the terms that the book itself would use. Both the people in this story are lovers. Um, the story doesn't assume, the poems rather, uh, don't assume that it's, it's a man who takes the initiative, is the active partner in a relationship, and the woman is the passive partner and who is on the receiving end. Um, the woman can love and the man can be loved uh, in the Song of Songs. Is the Song of Songs the most plausible candidate for identification as a biblical book that was written by a woman? The female voice speaks for 53% of the time. The male voice 
speaks for 34% of the time. It's a woman's perspective more than a man's in the words. But then David Kleins asks whether the voyeurist perspective is male. There's more the, the man talks about more how things look. Uh, Esther, I've already suggested to you, um, tells the story of Vashti, the radical feminist who refuses to cooperate with the system, uh, and also the story of Esther, the liberal feminist who works the system. Daniel uh, is a story of macho men and consorts, mistresses, a queen mother, wives executed with their husbands, political pawns, and other women who've learned to act in macho ways. And then Ruth, which isn't a wisdom book, but which is worth putting alongside them, the story we've seen in which two women take responsibility for their lives and become for each other what their men could not be, though they too have to work within the patriarchal system. Uh, and the, a story that might be another plausible candidate for female authorship. Goodbye. Come back next week. Eat scones. Hi. Um, last week I had told you my yeah, mom. Yeah. She's much better. Oh, great. Good. The whole family is rejoicing for a miracle we have. Yeah. Um, but I wanted to see if I can negotiate a couple more days for my paper. Yeah, sure, yeah. Maybe yeah. Monday? Yeah, that's fine. Bye. Sure, that's fine. Thank you, sir. Do I need to email you? No, when, when you... Let me turn this thing off. When you turn it in... In, in the message, in the message, the covering message, okay. remind me that I said it was okay. Thank you so much.